2: I'm Alan Alda, and this is clear and vivid conversations about connecting and communicating.
3: I think when people talk about improvisation and even improvising scenes when you're working on a film and comedy, it's you, it's not really about the jokes. If you can think of one in the moment, it, great. But if you are really if you're really connected with the person you're acting opposite. Um, You know, you, you have to kind of innately know, oh, this is where this is going, so I have to play this seriously to help them do what they're going to do. That's Paul Rudd.
2: We've acted in a couple of movies together, and in fact, one of the highlights of my acting life was a scene we improvised. One of the reasons it sticks in my memory is that we managed to do what Paul was just talking about. We connected with each other, and we went with it wherever it led us. The scene never made it into the movie, but for me, it was a highlight. And I was glad to be back in touch with Paul again. This is great to be talking with you because I had so much fun with you when we acted together.
3: I feel the same. I, I, I loved working with you. We've, more than once, we've been able to do it. I mean, going back to the 90s with Object of My Affection and then Wanderlust, we had a blast.
2: One of the highlights for me was that scene we improvised in Wanderlust. That never made it into the movie. <laughs> no. But I know. You were you were you were such a good improviser. Did you ever study impro- improvisation or did you belong to an improv company
3: ever? I never did. I um that by the way, that was a highlight of my career getting to be able to do that with you. Um, <laughs> but I never, you know, I never really studied it in terms of going through Second City or you know, doing any of that kind of stuff. When I was in high school junior high and then high school, I started doing, um, these speech competitions in our school district. And one of the, one of the, uh, categories that you could perform in was, uh, improvised duet acting. So I had an acting partner and that was, you know, uh, we would do these tournaments where you'd pick a topic or something. You'd get to go out in the hall for 10 minutes or so, come back in and then perform some four, three, four minute sketch. Um, that was the first experience I ever had with any kind of improvisation and I really liked it. But, um, once I decided to become an actor, I studied theater and you never improvise when you're doing a play. And then when I started working, um, in movies, very little improvisation. It wasn't until I had, uh, worked on the movie Anchor Man and i worked with will ferrell and adam mckay uh, and judd apatow that all of a sudden they started filming uh they started improvising so much and really using the <laughs> script as a blueprint and I, I just loved it so much and i loved what that uh i just love what it could do for a moment and what you know keep you on your toes it forces you to listen yeah, and that yeah. ultimately is what this is all about. So um, that's right. Yeah, it,
2: you know, I improvised a lot as a young actor and learned Viola Spolin's way of improvising. Did you ever? Did you ever come across her work? No, it's, no. It's amazing because it's not comedy improvising. There's a lot of laughter involved in it mm-hmm. because there's spontaneity, which tickles everybody. You know, you right. when you see something happening for the first time. And the people are really connected, really listening to each other, and in the
3: same place. It tickles you. Yeah. But it's not jokes. You don't go for jokes. Well, this is the big misconception, I think, when people talk about improvisation. And even improvising scenes when you're working on a film and comedy, it's, you, it's not really about the jokes. If you can think of one in the moment, it, great. But if, you are really, if you're really connected with the person you're acting opposite... Um, You know, you you have to kind of innately know, oh, this is where this is going. So I have to play this seriously to help them do what they're going to do.
2: The two basic elements of improvising, you do. One is to agree, say yes, and. Yes, and, right. But Where does that take you next? And the other is to make your partner look good and not use your partner as a, as a, tool for your own aggrandizement (laughs) (laughs) when you started improvising more in movies did you find that changed you in your day-to-day routines with other people because i i see you, you you seem to live an improvisatory life I see you're comfortable with strangers. Nothing seems to throw you. Somebody comes over to the table while you're eating. You don't, uh, spit, your, <laughs> you don't spit out your food. <laughs>
3: maybe, maybe, it's, <laughs> maybe it's taught me to not, to not let that fear and panic show. Because I do feel, I, I should say, I'm not completely unflappable in any of those situations. I don't feel it inside. But like anything, if you fake it, well enough then it's good enough and um and it it probably i suppose the improvisation of all of it has informed who i am um uh, to a certain extent it has certainly informed how i act because i don't think i've done anything in the last except a play where I, i don't really i won't improvise but um I don't think I've done anything where I haven't at least played around with dialogue or left some space open to say, hey, can we just see what kind of happens here? Uh, I know, I know that feeling. When
2: I when I was a kid and and beginning on the stage, in rehearsal, I would because I loved improvising so much, I'd feel free in rehearsal to improvise a line here and there. And I mm-hmm. would feel like a million bucks on opening night, those lines were still in the play. You know? <laughs>
3: Right, but well, yeah, that's a lot easier to do if you're not doing Hamlet. (laughs) Right, much easier. What do you do when When you when (gasps) the writer's alive? You get a little bit. If I have rehearsed a play, and the the playwright is in the room during rehearsals, and then they might say, "Oh, yeah, I like that. Let's let's add that." Yeah, right, exactly.
2: (laughs) well what do you do? Because I know you've done Shakespeare. What do you do? With all your spontaneity, you're, you're just loaded with spontaneity. Do you, do you have a way to combine that with the rigid demands
3: of speaking poetry? Yeah, I suppose the spontaneity is uh, everything that you do outside of the dialogue. Uh, if I'm doing a play, I love working with other actors that they're so free that they change everything they're doing, even on a nightly basis. Mm. The words... The words are the same, yeah, but maybe there's a, they're doing something in between, you know, in between the lines and that's completely different. And it, it just, it's so charged. It's so great to act with people that do that. I did a play and the actor, a great actor, Michael Shannon, I loved working with him. Every night he was doing something completely different. And and when you're doing a play and you're doing eight shows a week, over time, you you, you know, you want that. It you want, you want some some break from the standard thing. Yeah, and it, keeps and the, I, it gives it, the
2: thing a beating heart. That's right. And I've on this show, I've talked with great musicians like Yo-Yo Ma and Itzhak Perlman. They say exactly the same thing. You play the same notes, but you've come alive to it in a different way mm-hmm. at each
3: performance. If, with your background also, just always improvising, when you're writing something you start improvising the scene in your mind and you just start to let that take over a little bit. You, do you find that to be true? Are you? I, I, with me, it's a little more mysterious
2: because with me, different characters are improvising on their own. Mm. You know, I, it's not, not as if I'm the character. I, I hear these people talking in a way. It's not, it's not quite
3: as loopy as it sounds. It's not woo-woo. But but it's, it's it's unusual. But you're in the mindset of that character, and so what you improvise or what you're saying is different for each character. Yes, yes. How I do you ha- learn
2: lines? You remember are reminding me of how I learned my lines. How do you learn your lines? I write them out. Oh, that's interesting.
3: <laughs> yeah, I learned that in in uh, I learned that in in acting school, and when uh-huh. I'm doing a play, I would write them out, and I would just keep writing them over and over, so they were so ingrained. Um, if I have to memorize a lot of dialogue and it's a film and I, I, I will just, uh, read them and go over them and go over them and I, I can memorize pretty quickly. So, uh, there's no hard and fast rule, but I do find that at the end of the day, if I really need to get something down and I have a lot of dialogue to memorize, I'm, I'm writing it out. I
2: can't learn anything off a piece of paper. I did something wrong with my brain there. I have to do it. I have to say it. I used to mm-hmm. learn all my lines in rehearsal and on the stage because you rehearse for weeks. Right. In movies, you rehearse for seconds. <laughs>
3: you know? So then are you getting your dialogue and then are you walking around your, your house or your, in your trailer or wherever, or your dressing room, and you're just saying the lines out loud and kind of acting it out before you have to do It's even it even worse than
2: that. I or turn on a, a, the iPhone Mm-hmm. And I record the whole scene, so I, I have the advantage of playing a scene. Yeah. So the other characters are played by me in a cartoon voice, so I know—
3: But <laughs> you do right. it in a
2: different voice. Oh. <laughs> so I know who's talking. Oh, I, <laughs> I love you so much. Don't ever leave me. I'll never leave you, but what about this guy who's here? What, me? I'm, I'm just d- delivering milk. <laughs> yeah.
3: Yeah. I've done it too, by the way. There's no one, I don't, there's no (laughs) one way for me. I'm trying all different things, but um, yeah, it's helpful. Whatever it takes to get them down. The one thing that when I learned to write them out and when I was doing this at first, when I would do it as a play, I was always to try and memorize my lines before any rehearsal. And I tried to memorize them and write them out and never say them aloud. Mm. Because when you write them out, you uh, you really get them down in your subconscious in a way that you just you don't when you're just going over something, and yeah. you're also reading the other lines um, from the other actors, the other characters, uh, so you know how to reply um, and, and and what they're saying. Which yeah, is so important. The most important part. And, yeah, or, or just as important, and uh, and so that was an interesting way to start. By by writing lines out, never saying them aloud, and then we'd get to the rehearsal room and perform the the scene or start rehearsing it. And it's and and, and, when you're writing it out, you're not committed to a way of doing it. Exactly, you're not hearing the intonation. You're hearing it in your head a little bit, but you're not actually saying it aloud. And when you then get it on its feet, sometimes the words come out very differently. It's a it's a real discovery in in rehearsal when you haven't actually been going over your lines.
2: That's uh, so good. It's really good.
3: It's a it's a luxury that I think you have in theater a lot more than in, in you know, TV and film.
2: I was thinking when you were talking about improv during the the shooting of a movie from the stage experience I have every line that's written is you know, it's it's, it's important I have to rem- I have to find out what it really means and why I'm saying it, and sometimes I can't understand what the purpose of these words is. And sometimes when you ask somebody, they get offended if you ask them. Hmm. Hmm. So, what do you do when when that happens?
3: Um. Well, I I, I figure it, it if I don't know exactly what it is that I'm saying, um, it's, it's not, it, no one else is going to understand. It. <laughs> <Do you laughs> I it's like trying to BS your way through a test. <laughs> you know, it's like you kind of have to know it. And th- that just kind of goes back also to when I was first studying Shakespeare and, and I had my Shakespeare glossary and it was in school. They say, you better know what you are saying on every line and if you don't it will just sound like a bunch of and gobbledygook you're not going to follow any of it uh, as an audience member yeah if you know as the actor what it is that you're saying it, it the audience is going to know they're going to it. they it, it, very aware they don't even have to speak the language you can understand uh, an actor's intention by the way their voices, the way the way they're moving, you, you can understand these things, but but only if you really know what it is you're saying. So it, it's like I might offend somebody, or I might I'm, look. I'll claim stupidity. I don't get. I kind of don't get this. What, what am I saying here? Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. I do That's, that too. I really just, I don't have to feign stupidity. I just end yeah. with my mouth hanging either, open. I,
3: I don't either. More often than not, they actually just assume. They say, "Let me explain this to you before we get into the rehearsal."
2: I had a terrible experience once where I, I, I had the wrong idea about what the scene was. And I've seen other actors go through this, too. They, they, they come in with just the opposite notion of what's going on. And it's difficult to get an actor to turn it around, hmm. especially to do the opposite of it. Yeah. But I here I was at this point doing the opposite of it, and I didn't realize it. And nobody was telling me because oh. they were afraid that they didn't want to hurt my feelings. or something. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, when we were on MASH, we would just be so open with each other because we trusted each other.
3: Yeah. Like when you're doing your own films, your own project, films that you've written and directed or um, versus ones that you have just been uh, hired to act in, do you, do you, is your approach different? Do you feel as passionate about all of them, or are you more passionate about yours particularly, and you want to get the word I, out more? Uh, I used to get more desperate if it was a picture
2: <laughs> I, wrote, I wrote and directed. I'd be i would be, I'd be m- more likely to get into a mode where I was pleading with the audience to go see it. Mm. <laughs> it wasn't very attractive to, to see that <laughs> happen. <laughs> you know, you put as an actor you can put a few months into a movie as a writer and as the director you're you're putting at least two years into it maybe three or four yeah so the desperation quotient can go up
3: <laughs> well and as a result the passion for something is, is oh yeah. deeper i mean it's your thing
2: When we come back from our break, Paul Rudd talks about getting in shape for his starring role in the Ant-Man movies. And in what became an extended version of our seven quick questions, Paul tells me what he wishes he really understood and what's the strangest question he's ever been asked after this. Don't forget, if you enjoy listening to the fascinating guests we have on Clear and Vivid... You can help keep the flame alive by becoming a patron of the show. Clear and Vivid and the Alder Center for Communicating Science are both nonprofit, and your patronage of Clear and Vivid helps support them both. You can become a patron at any level and get early access to special videos. At the highest level, you can get fun and sometimes weird benefits, like my recording of your personalized voicemail message. Either with courteous dignity or for the rambunctious among you— a message with a certain amount of attitude. Take a look at patreon.com clearandvivid. Patreon.com clearandvivid. And thank you.
1: Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call.
2: This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Paul Rudd. Now, let me ask you about Ant-Man. I was very struck by the scene where you took off your shirt and you had these rippling muscles across <laughs> your belly.
3: Was that you or was that a computer? That was me. Whoa. That was me. Yeah, that was, uh, it was the, f- it, it, I always say, like, if you really, really want to get in great shape, uh, try and get cast as the lead in a Marvel film. <laughs> It wouldn't do me any good. It, it's a really <laughs> it's a really good motivator. I had to do a movie work a few,
2: a few years ago where I was already past 75, and i will get out of a swimming pool and walk across the path next to the pool and pick up a towel. I said, don't make me do this oh. in a bathing suit. I said, don't worry, we got a computer that's going to fix everything. And they took oh. 15 years off my belly.
3: It's, it really... <laughs> I wish I knew that they would do, they could do that before I put in the <laughs> year and a <laughs> half of just eating salmon. And, oh man. You really, you and, must've worked nope, extremely hard. Oh my God. the hard, people say, what's the hardest you've ever worked on anything? And the hardest is, is, is the actual diet and exercise preparing for these Marvel films. It's, it's great. I mean, i I have never been in better shape than, you know, as a, middle-aged guy working on these, in these movies. But, um, uh, I'd never, I'd never committed to fitness and diet and exercise like that in my life. And, and you, I understand when people say, oh, you feel great. You sleep great. Uh, you have energy and, and, uh, and clarity and focus. I, I, I really did feel all the benefits of that. Um, and so it, you know, it was, a cool experience to do. I mean, I'm still kind of doing it. And, um,
2: I was going to ask, do you, do you keep it
3: up? Yeah, I, uh, I do. I kept, I never stopped from doing in between the first and second one. We're getting ready to do a third one, Mm. but, um, I actually just worked on something and went longer than it was supposed to because of COVID. Uh, but that part would have, it wouldn't have made any sense to be in great shape. And so I had been training before that thing came around and I stopped all of it. Mm, and then so now you're behind. the. the so now I've been, here. I've picked it up now over the last few months, working with trainers in diet and all of that stuff. But, um, it's coming a lot harder this, <laughs> this time. <of laughs> and, and I thought, Oh no, I have to, <laughs> I got to really. Yeah. So for the next, for the rest of the year, I'm going to be in the, in the fitness zone. But, um, It's amazing how quickly it all falls away. It goes away.
2: (laughs) It goes away faster than it comes in. Boy, you are not kidding. You know, we, we usually end our shows with seven quick questions that ask for seven quick answers. But I'd like to know more about your answers to these questions. Okay. So don't feel you have to give super brief answers because I want to hear more of this stuff. These are questions that are roughly related to communication and relating. First
3: of all, what do you wish you really understood? Italian. (laughs) And quantum physics. Italian, quantum
2: physics. And, you know, for me, it's quantum physics in Italian. That's the hard part. Oh, boy. That's a... uh, No kidding. Boy, that's the double whammy. Um, but you were great when I asked you to play or do a reading of a theater piece I wrote based on the letters of Albert Einstein. I asked you to be Albert Einstein, and I, w- I remember being so wary of asking you because you're very busy, and I wanted you to make I wanted to make sure you knew that it'd be a lot of fun and it wouldn't take long to do. And you just answered with one quick sentence. You had me at E equals M C squared.
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was elated. I was so honored you had asked me to do that. I was excited. I mean, I find the subject matter incredibly interesting. I'm such a fan of yours. That was the coolest thing ever. I loved it. Well, you
2: um, were wonderful in it. You um, knew you first of all, you you knew what you were talking about as 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 the scientist Einstein, and you also knew where the laughs were as an actor, and I
3: loved that. Oh, it was, it was a, a, I mean, what a pleasure. And getting to hang out with you and, and, and what, learning a little bit what, from what, Brian. what Yeah. Yeah. Brian Green. What,
2: Brian Green. What is yeah. your, do you have an interest in, in quantum physics and that kind of thing? I mean, the, the Ant-Man is floating around in the quantum realm. Did, yes. Did you write, did you write that after you played Einstein or before? <laughs>
3: <laughs> I wrote it after. At, right after. Actually, it was, it was when I did Einstein. That was right when this was all starting to happen. Um, and I spent a lot of time afterward with Brian Green asking him questions. I, I find the whole notion of quantum physics, and uh, it's so mind-bending, truly. And when you talk to somebody who really knows what they're talking about... They actually make it seem like you understand it. I find that when I talk <laughs> about science with you. I find that when I talk about science with uh, Brian. Uh, you, you know, it, it's, um, it, 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 I had that same feeling when I went to go see Arcadia and I have Tom Stoppard's words. I'm like, oh, I totally understand yeah, uh, right. Fermat's last theorem. I don't. <laughs> but the person explaining it is so bright that <laughs> it makes me feel smart. Yeah. Um, no, I I, uh, I I find it all so fascinating and hard to really grasp. And and when I'm, you know, either writing about the quantum realm or talking about uh, this kind of stuff in these Ant Man films, there it's always the most rudimentary inconsistent, um, wannabe way. Um, but I always will try and say, does this, you know, talk to somebody who would know this, does it seem within the realm of possibility? I mean, you know, and so, and you, so do, be, you would, you would check
2: out the I, science behind it. I will, yeah. That. yeah. Yeah, I, great. I, would,
3: I do, yeah. So, uh, you know, what is it that I, it's a big question that I'm going back to the original, what, what is it that I, I wish I under, I understood. Um, I, I always, would like to know more about why I do and react to things the way that I do and, and and who I am. I mean, I'm always envious of whenever I hear like really amazing people, very bright people. And they say, Oh no, I know who I am. Mm. And yeah, that's uh, an interesting phrase. Yeah. I know who I am. I, I yeah. just think, Oh God, how lucky are you?
2: I share your quest and I think as you get older, because you're interested in that question, you'll probably find, as I did, more moments where I think I know who I am and where mm. you will think you know who you are. Yeah. But I don't know if you'd get that
3: easily right away. It takes a, it takes a while. I, I, I feel, you know, over time, like you say, uh, more experiences My, you know, i when I had children and I've been watching my children grow up, um, what it is understanding what makes me happy now, more so than I did 10 years ago, 20 years ago, they are experiencing real loss and grief in ways that I never had until my father died. That kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they do inform us experiences like that inform us, uh, and they're informing me of, how i feel about it and but i i'm still trying to piece it all together i don't have a real clear cut knowledge of who it is exactly that i am
2: well let me get to the second of our seven questions (laughs) okay how do you tell someone they have their facts wrong
3: Ooh their facts wrong assuming you know I, what the I, fact is uh, yeah i mean uh it, boy this is a really and every day we're confronted with this right now. Mm, yeah now um it, it depending on who it is that i'm talking to and what it is and what those facts are and what it is what the subject matter is sometimes um uh, you know i will i will either say well that's an interesting way of Looking at it, this is my take on it, and right. and that's ideally where I'd like to imagine. I'm I'm my I'm dealing with that <laughs> yeah. quest, a, a situation every time. The majority of the time, I um, am losing my patience, and I call <laughs> and I say, "No, you are wrong. How can you even and, you know that kind of thing?" And then there's an, another part of the time where I think I'm not even going to debate the fact that these facts are wrong. I'm just going to get out of I'm just going to remove myself from this conversation. Get me
2: out of here. Get me out of (laughs) here. Okay, number three. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Oh,
3: boy. I don't know the strangest. I I have one question that I never really know how to answer that I get a lot of, and that is people always want to know. They say, you don't age. What do you do? Like, they want to know, uh, my skincare routine or what is it? They, 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 they ask me a lot about what, how is it that it doesn't seem like I'm aging as quickly as I should, which I feel inside that I am. And I look at myself in the mirror and I think I am, I don't know what you're seeing, but more often than not, I get asked this question and it's always thrown out in a way that is impossible to answer. I never know what to say. I mean, it's a nice, I go, thank you. But I, uh, I always I always struggle with that one. That question. I never I never know how to I have a,
2: a fun funny version of that. I seem to have looked younger to people for a long time than I really was. And when I was sixty, people would say, How old are?" You? I'd say, I'm sixty, they'd say, Oh no, no, come on. What do you mean? Come on. Right. And then now I say they say, How old are you? I say eighty five, they say, Uh-huh. <laughs> Uh, i'll tell you something i you,
3: there's you're a point of phenomenal for 85 but no but uh, there's an age everybody reaches I, where it's uh-huh you know. I, I i know what you mean and i'm starting to get that too where it's at the last age i'm 52 like okay yeah there, <laughs> no that makes sense <laughs> so i it is it is true there was i remember speaking of just great improvisation and i was working on a movie called this is 40 yeah. and I got to work with Albert Brooks, who, in my opinion, mm. is one of the funniest people on the Age planet. Great, and so this scene with uh, he was doing with Leslie Mann, and she's saying it's unfair. I'm getting older, and I'm looking older, and he's getting older, but he still looks uh, young. And and uh, she was complaining about this, and uh, his line that he improvised, <laughs> he said, "That's for now. It's just now." By the, don't worry, by the time he hits 50, you're, you're waking up next to a rabbi. (laughs) (laughs) So, so there, there, it it is, it's like, yeah, when you hit a certain point, it's like, all right, now, now you look your age. It's not a bad thing.
2: (laughs) Okay. Here's the next question. This is another communication question. How do you stop a compulsive talker?
3: Wow. That is, uh, it's a, that's a tough one. Dep- well, depending on what they're talking about, you can, you can offer up, uh, well, you know, f- let me interrupt you here. Let me tell you about my, um, my relationship with Scientology and then they'll they'll go. <laughs> <laughs> they'll leave. <laughs> In fact, I have a pamphlet here for you. Yeah. Let me, I've got some here. I'd like to go over, over with Yeah. Yeah. Or uh, <laughs> give them a, a taste of their, so that whatever, whatever it is that, yeah.
2: Okay, let's say you're sitting at a dinner table which is coming back now. And you're sitting next to someone you don't know. How do you start up a true authentic conversation with that person you don't know?
3: Yeah, wow. This is uh, yeah, this is a great question and you know, and there's always the standard what do you what do you do, which uh, is pretty standard, but um, m- I have friends that are so good at this and I sit back and marvel at them. And I just, what what do they do? They are so, uh, I think that what they do is that they really listen to what that other person is saying. And then they ask them questions about it Mm. and they, they will, uh, make it so relaxed and easy for that other person to talk. And then they'll say something based on what it was they're talking about. So that it isn't, they don't, the person doesn't feel like they're just getting barraged with questions about themselves, but instead it becomes a conversation because the, you know, the person is really contributing to what it is they're talking about. And then it's, and then it opens it up a a little bit. And so if there's any way you can somehow get some kind of Common ground, some topic here where it's like, oh, I know a little bit about this, or uh, mm. I'm interested in this. And, and then, w- did you find and, and and I suppose just um, ask them, ask them questions. I'm trying to get better at, at that, and not just say, yeah. That, that my... what you just did, which
2: really sounds useful. That, that tone. Did you have that same thing? You know that where you are interested in them in on the fly. Yeah, and yeah, you're invite it, inviting them to just. Get off the awkward carousel and get on the ground with
3: you. Yeah, I mean, just and it's it's a real skill. It's not a skill that I possess. Um, I, I I would like to be better at it. Okay, next
2: the last question: What book changed your life?
3: Oof! Uh, you know, at the time that I read it, I was young. I think it was in college. I I, I read Siddhartha. Oh. And, uh, it had a real, it, it, uh, uh, boy, this is a great question. It had a real uh, effect on me at the time. in just in this, to be able to fast, to be able to think, to be, to be able to think in a way and sit and think and be still with your, that, that book, um, I thought about that book for a long time. Tell me a little time. bit about it. I'm not sure I remember. Yeah, it's Herman Hesse, uh, or Hesse. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, rem- uh, I know the title, yeah. but I never read it. Right. It, it, it's um, it's a lot about kind of, I haven't read it in so long, but but the, the, this thing that they repeat quite a bit about being able to fast, to be, to be able to think, and self-reflection, and meditation, and... Um, uh, enlightenment. Uh, it, it, I mean, it was, it was a very, sp- I'm saying, here talking about it now and people might be listening. Me, what? What book is he talking about? <laughs> he didn't read that book. <laughs> uh, but, uh, <laughs> um, it, it was, it dealt with some themes uh, that I hadn't ever r- really thought about too much. I was at an age, I mean, I was probably, she said, I might've even been in high school. Um, it was different than any other book that I'd read, which either if it wasn't something, autobiographical with some sort of fictional story and that, but it didn't really deal with spiritual issues in any way um and i just remember it shifted my way of thinking um and i still I, I i still think about oh not that i fast i don't i have in the past and i think it was the times i had done that it i always was thinking back to that book um to see what sort of inspiration, what kind of, what my clarity of my thoughts would be and, and introspection.
2: It sounds like introspection is something the book gave you, gave you the the beginning of an introspective life.
3: Is that, is that what, what happened? Uh, yeah. I mean, it made me trying to really think and experience things on a, on a much deeper introspective level. Um, that was just one. I'm, I'm going through. I'm going through the checklist, kind of the in in my mind, different books at different times. I I I uh, I, I read a prayer for Owen Meany. It might have been I want to say the first John Irving book that I had written mm. that had a I loved and then sent me on a John Irving tear, um, and so that that book, you know, really had a profound impact on me and, and and led to, you know, many different books that I read by John Irving.
2: Let me ask you the
3: question. What about you? I, I'm curious about what— uh, Oh,
2: you know, with me, it was—it's it. it it's kind of weird. The book that changed my life was one I read when I was seven years old called Top Horse at Crescent Ranch, and it was just a story about a horse that made me— Want to be a writer. Hmm. And I, I started to write a book that I was inspired to write by reading Top Horse at Crescent Ranch. And the title of my book was Not the Top Horse at Crescent Ranch. <laughs> <laughs> you can see I had a creative bent. <laughs> but it made me, it made me, um, awakened to the idea that you can put words together and create things in people's minds. Hmm. That you can stir feelings and have people appear and do things and it was all in the imagination. Yeah. And, then, and I, I loved that. Wow. That that made me want to be a writer and the the fact that my father had many books full of sketches from burlesque, mm-hmm. which which he had been a Straight man in before he became a movie actor right so i I, I would draw in those sketches from burlesque and I would write uh, courtroom scenes you know wow. full of full of stupid gags.
3: so it was books that yeah they really showed you what you wanted to do. yeah, I wanted yeah. to be a writer a writer at eight wow.
2: and then later in life when I was nine, I wanted to be an actor.
3: so writing came first for you yeah,
2: so here's the last question.
3: What gives you confidence? Um, these are great questions. Great questions, Alan. Uh, what gives me confidence? Well, it, different things in different ways. I, I If I'm if I can make, if I'm working on a movie and I do, and it's, and the crew laughs, I feel confident. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a comedian with the band laughing. Yeah. You know, it's just, if they can get, like, oh, I know they're not supposed to laugh. And they're doing, then I feel, then I feel like, ah, oh, I feel a little uh, yeah, confident. Fi- finally.
2: Well, you had that moment where you had ideas about Ant-Man and then, there was this other moment a little bit later where you were writing it mm. it seems to seems to me there was some confidence in between those two moments
3: well it you, you know it's in a way, it's going back to what we were talking about early in this podcast, which is it, it doesn't matter what you're feeling on the inside. If you can fake it well enough and act like you're not sweating it too much, it's almost <laughs> it's as good. <laughs> I, I I came to that movie as an actor, not as a writer. I yeah. was only hired as a writer after the fact. And um, I was somebody that did not grow up knowing about Ant-Man. I was not a comic book uh, fanatic. And... I knew I was treading in territory where the fandom was pretty intense, and they know the they know the backstories of all of these characters and this and this world, and real comic book lovers, and and um and so I was a little um, certainly uh, not very confident in my knowledge of this world, and uh I I knew that when I was working with Adam McKay that I was working with a great co writer and partner in it. And I also knew that the people at Marvel and Kevin Feige and that group, they do know this world and they do, and they're really talented. So I was able to, um, take some solace in knowing that I was surrounded by really talented people. And that includes, you know, the cast, but, uh, but no, I, I, I I guess at a certain point you just have to look like, well, it's like, well, what's the alternative? I just don't do anything and don't do any of this. i, I better I better at least fake my way through it as much as possible and, and then just hope for the best. Well, you didn't fake your way through this conversation. I
2: really I I appreciated you giving everything so much thought. Oh, cuz you're an you. interesting I,
3: person. I I uh, I I really enjoyed it and I know what's going to happen is that when we're done and we hang up, I'm going to think of a book. <laughs> and say, okay. oh right. no, I can't believe I well, missed. If, uh, you it, if,
2: you, if you can't think of one, I recommend Top Horse at Crescent's Range. <laughs> <laughs> it's great to talk to you, Paul. Thank
3: you. <laughs> Thank you, Alan. I appreciate it. Great talking to you.
2: This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep Clear and Vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Paul Rudd is getting back in shape and brushing up on quantum mechanics to film the third Ant-Man movie later this year. It's subtitled Quantum Mania. Meanwhile, he's co-starring with Will Ferrell in an Apple TV original series premiering in November called The Shrink Next Door. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chemey. Our sound engineer is Erica Huang, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Cynthia Kenyon. She made a major breakthrough 20 years ago when she discovered a gene that dramatically slowed aging in a minuscule worm. Since then, she's been working to see if her discovery could slow aging in other animals, like you and me.
0: First of all, I have to just say, and I always say this because it's very true, we don't know that the drugs that we could make to hit these genes will have an effect at all in humans. But let's suppose they do. It would be as though it would take you two days to age as much as you now age in one day. Okay? So you would spend a lot more time being young but then you would also spend more time being old. On the other hand, wait, there's one more thing though that's good, that is good, which is that in animals, these drugs seem to have very beneficial effects on diseases. There's less cancer, the heart is much better. It seems like the brain is, more, is, is better. So it's not really clear what will happen, but at least if we go by what we see in animals, the diseases of aging seem to be pushed out and they, that is later in time. And if anything, they seem less severe.
2: Cynthia Kenyon, next time on Clear and Vivid. Meanwhile, on our other podcast, Science Clear and Vivid, I talk with Polina Anakiva. She's making breakthroughs in communicating with the cells of the brain and spinal cord using ultra-thin electrodes and even tiny magnetic particles.
0: We are very much at the frontier of technology. A lot of things that we do are strange and wild and are very far away from the clinic uh, because there is a lot of um, uh, safety and uh, efficacy studies that need to be conducted before we can uh, apply this to, to treat uh, human condition. But in terms of uh, providing information to understand how the brain works, how the nervous system works, that's what our devices are ready to be used right now.
2: Paulina Anikheva, next time on Science Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda.